Let us pray. Father, may that be our heart's cry, that they may know we are Christians by our love, our love for you, our love for one another, and our love for the world all around us. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you, and good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad you joined us, and sorry for a slight technical glitch at the beginning where we weren't streaming, but we're so glad that you're watching on the live stream as well. And for those of you who haven't been here for a while because of COVID, as I say so often, we miss you and look forward to seeing you back soon. We had a wonderful service this past Thursday night, observing Ascension Day, and just a wonderful time of worship in the Lord, and um, God's presence was very evident among us. And so thank you all who came and those who watched down the live stream as well. I want to invite you this morning to take out your Bibles or devices with scripture on them or reach under your pew and grab one of the pew Bibles and turn to the 17th chapter of St. Joy. Now focusing on the 17th chapter of John's gospel, here Jesus bequeaths to them his prayer for unity. Remember, this is on the night that he was betrayed after speaking directly to his disciples, basically saying farewell, Jesus now prays not only for them, but for those who will believe in him through their ministry, through the ministry of his disciples. And this prayer found in John 17 verses 1 through 26 is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's called this because it looks forward to the cross as the consummation of Christ's work as our great high priest. And in a sense, this, this prayer is very much spoken in the shadow of the cross. It is also the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all of Scripture. Today we'll be focusing on the conclusion, specifically verses 24, 20 through 24 of this prayer. The primary focus of these verses that we're looking at today is Jesus' prayer for unity of his disciples, for unity among believers. And we also see that the all himself. In our focus verses, Jesus' prayer is not only, as I've already mentioned, for the disciples gathered with him at that moment, it is also, again, for everyone, for those who will believe in him through their word, through their testimony. And foundational for our understanding today in all that follows is this question. What does it mean to believe? In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, Jesus says, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I know I've talked about this in past sermons, but this is an incredibly important question for us to ask. Since Jesus himself clearly states that belief in him is the foundation of our unity as Christians. We often hear in the world around us and in the culture at large, well, many people saying things such as, well, I believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus too, that's all that matters. But is that enough? Is that all that matters? People of many religions not just Christianity, believe in Jesus. In some cases, they believe that he is a prophet or 
lived a good life and was a good man and a wonderful ethical teacher. But they deny that Jesus is divine and that he is the eternal son of God. They deny the significance of his crucifixion, of his sacrificial death for the sins of the world. They deny the fact that he lived a sinless and perfect life. And they deny the need for a savior because they reject the reality of original sin, the truth that we as human beings are born sinful and separated from God. And that there is nothing that we can do through our own human efforts or good works to remedy the situation. And that we are dependent on God's loving and gracious action toward us through Jesus Christ to remedy that. Or what about people, and I use the term very loosely, who identify as Christians, but they deny certain truths about who Jesus is that are indeed essential. A few examples, they deny that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. They deny the virgin birth. Or they deny the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And so often in this vein of thinking, you will hear people say, it's not important that Jesus was raised physically from the grave, but it's the spirit of the teachings of Jesus that lived on through the disciples, their memories that were shared, and that's what the resurrection is all about. Brothers and sisters, that is hogwash. That is hogwash. That is completely contrary to the record of Scripture. Or if people deny that Jesus is the only Savior of the world, somehow reducing what Jesus is to something simply as being one among many great ethical teachers, all who equally point us toward God. Is that enough? Well, my question would be, how do we reconcile these kinds of ideas or assertions with Jesus' words on this same night on which he was betrayed in John 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or with St. Peter's words in Acts 4.12, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or how about St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15? For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The bottom line is this, brothers and sisters. It is not simply believing in Jesus in some humanly defined or contrived way, how we decide we in ourselves want to believe in Jesus that matters. It is believing in Jesus as the scriptures, as God's word teaches, and as it has been rightly understood by the church down through the centuries. Believing the right things about Jesus, what scripture says about Jesus and who he is and what he has accomplished in their totality, together with entering into a living, life-transforming relationship with Christ. It's head and heart. Can't be separated. It's both. Right belief, living relationship, which is by God's grace to what Christ has done. That is what a true faith in Christ looks like. 
not just an emotional experience, not just some cognitive system of belief, but those two things rightly coupled together in line with the truth of God's word. This is what counts. The whole package of who Jesus is and what he has done. And anything less is insufficient. And this, these truths as we are made alive in Christ are the only foundation for our unity as believers, for our unity as Christians. Now I know I've spent a large amount of time on this as we start this sermon this morning, but this is incredibly important for us to understand, especially in the world and the culture in which we live, where there are so many errant ideas about what a true living faith relationship with God looks like. So many errant ideas about who Jesus is. We must look to the record of scripture, God's word, and what the church has taught faithfully down through the centuries. It's a funny illustration I wanted to share about unity. It doesn't fit that much with what I just said, but I, I wanted to share it because we talk about some heavy things to, to lighten things up a little bit. This is the story told by Barbara Brokoff in her book, Grapes of Wrath or Grace, about a group of American tourists in Rome. And it's really a picture of unity and the importance of sticking together. So a group of American tourists were walking or were taking a bus tour of Rome led by their English-speaking guide. And their first stop was a basilica in a piazza, which was surrounded by several lanes of relentless Roman traffic. If you've been to Rome, you know what she means by relentless Roman traffic. It's, it's a mess. After they were all safely dropped off, the group climbed the steps of the church for a quick tour. Then as they came out, they spread out to board the bus, which was now parked on the other side of these multiple lanes of traffic. And the frantic guide began shouting for the group to stay together. And he hollered out to them, if you cross one by one, they will hit you. But if you cross together, they will think you will hurt their cars and they won't. <laughs> There's much said for sticking together, for being in unity, um, even if it's with a funny story. But we do need each other and we do need indeed to stick together. But let's talk about the priorities of unity in this passage this morning, verses 21 through 23. And there are two God-given priorities which Jesus identifies in these verses. The first one is that we may be one. How are we able to be one? Well, Jesus says we're to be one in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. Well, whoa, that, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. And it's a command that and a prayer that is impossible in the natural it can only happen by the spirit of god who indwells every genuine believer by the holy spirit of god working in and through us to make that a reality as he brings about and does his good and transforming work in us as we grow to love one another and are one because we are growing in oneness with Jesus and the Father, and we love one another, and we love God just as God the Father and the Son love each other and are one. And here, once again, we have Jesus bringing focus to the reality of how we can love one another as Christians. This can and must be a lived reality that is only possible by the Spirit of God 
working in us to bring this to pass. And it's only by the Spirit of God that we can move toward that unity, how we can at times move beyond being offended by someone or something else in church, in the church, in the body of Christ. Every one of us gets hurt, gets offended by other people at some point, even in the church. But we move beyond this. It doesn't mean we ignore things that have happened, but we, we choose to forgive. We choose to move forward because the Spirit of God is bringing to us to that place of unity. And as we do this by God's grace and God's power, the Spirit himself works in us, bearing witness to the world around us of who Jesus is. Just as we sang this morning the song that David so appropriately picked, they will know that we are Christians by our love. And through this love, we bear witness to the truth and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Craig Keener in his commentary on this passage says this, the way believers treat one another is an essential component of proclaiming Jesus to the world. And it's an essential component that we as the church, and I'm not talking just about All Saints Church, but about the church of Jesus Christ, often really mess up. We really blow it. I know I touched on this again a few Sundays ago, but it's okay because these things are so important. And Jesus reiterates them repeatedly here in the Upper Room Discourse. It's okay to look at these things again because the great emphasis of Jesus is on this subject on this evening. The world in Jesus' day was filled with conflict and disunity. You had different ethnic and nationality factions. You had political factions. You had factions between various groups of Jews, between different groups of disciples of rabbis. You had the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai and they butted heads. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees who couldn't agree on much of anything except that they wanted to do away with Jesus. Arguings and disputings and fightings. And things really aren't much different in our day. We live in a world that is characterized and is identified and is labeled by its divisions. And we, as the people of God, are called to be and to conduct our lives differently we're called to forgive one another we are called by God's grace to let go of offenses and move forward together striving for unity and why so that the world may come to see and know Jesus through our witness that looks so different than everything else they see in the world around them. A horribly tragic story that um, is true. There's a church in Hartford County where Tammy and I came from, and I will not name the church or the denomination. But and this goes back, you know, 25 or 30 years. And Hartford County has a lot of new folks, but there are a lot of longtime Hartford County residents and. Um, and memories last a very long time, if you know what I'm saying. But there's a particular church in Hartford County that about 25 or 30 years ago, in two successive years, during their annual business meeting, the Hartford County Sheriff's Department had to be called because a fist fight 
broke out. That's true. What a reproach on the name of the Lord because, you know, the, so the sheriff's department gets called, so therefore it's on. There are police reports. It gets to the county newspaper, the Aegis. And even though it's been 25 or 30 years ago, when you talk to longtime people in the area in Hartford County, they remember that's the church where the fistfights broke out in the business meetings. What a tragedy. What a reproach on the name of the Lord. Two weeks ago in John 13, we read Jesus' prayer, so that the world may believe that you, meaning the Father, have sent me. We show and we help the world to believe by loving each other and by choosing unity, making oneness with Christ and oneness with each other a priority. A priority. The second priority we see is that we may show God's glory. So through our love and our unity, we show God's glory. Look at verse 23 with me. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The second priority of unity is that we may show God's glory. And it's closely tied to the first. The first priority being that we may be one. Do we really understand and believe that walking and living in the unity which God gives with one another brings glory to God? If we do, it should radically impact how we live and conduct our lives as believers. And hear me, unity is a choice. Unity is a choice. A God-breathed choice that only becomes a reality as we surrender our wills and our wants, getting our way to the heart and priorities of Christ and his kingdom. This whole thing about getting our way, and again, I'm not addressing any specific issue in this church, let me be clear, but it happens in every church. This idea of getting our way Always, And if we don't get what we want or things aren't done exactly the way we think they should be done, we're going to take our toys and go play somewhere else. We need to get over that. We need to get over that. Nothing's going to be done exactly the way everybody wants it, including your rector. But that's selfish. It's petty. It's ungodly. We are called to prefer one over the other and surrender our wills and our wants to what is best for our brothers and sisters. How does this happen? Well, once again, we're pointed back to Jesus' great commandment in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Think about how Jesus demonstrated his love. Just as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? How did Jesus love his disciples? We demonstrate God's glory 
when we follow Jesus in a living, a lively faith. We demonstrate God's glory by loving him, Jesus, who loved us first. We demonstrate God's glory when we love each other in the same way that Jesus loves us. A self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Loving each other even to the point of being willing to lay down our very lives for each other as believers. We demonstrate God's glory through laying aside our interests and personal agendas, dying to self for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And this all is only possible only possible as we press more fully into the heart and life of Jesus. This grows out of a lively faith. What we're talking about here grows out of intimacy with Jesus, union with Jesus, and the closer we walk with Jesus, the more he is going to bring his transforming grace to bear in our lives to make this a reality. We must love Jesus. We must draw close to him. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this needs to not only be a desire, but the unity we're talking about must be worked for. It's hard work sometimes. You know, it's hard work to love our brothers and sisters sometimes. It's okay to say that. (laughs) It's the truth. But that's what we're called to be and to do. We are to work for God-breathed unity in the love of Christ. And we are to guard that unity as well because it is a sacred thing, precious to God. Greater union with God will lead to greater unity with one another. And as we do that, we will show God's glory. We will glorify God to the world around us in a way that is totally foreign to anything that people have known or see anywhere else. That is God's heart and God's will for us. That is Jesus' prayer for us, even that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us, for your patience and loving kindness toward us in all of our shortcomings, with our faults, with our flaws, with our sinfulness. And yet, Father, you call us to walk closely with you, in union with you. And as we do that, you empower us to more fully love one another so that sin and self And all the baggage of this world is cast aside. And we more accurately and fully reflect who you are. We reflect your character, your grace, your love, the power of Jesus to transform to a world who desperately needs to hear this good news. So, Father, unite us to you this day. Unite us more fully to one another. And Lord, may we pursue unity, godly unity, with all our hearts, that you truly may be glorified. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.